This podcast is brought to you by Airs on Air, global mobility inspired thinking. The focus of this episode is Brexit and the end of freedom of movement. Our host is Bobby Bartle, General Counsel at Airs. Our guest today, Sophie King, Managing Director at Owl Immigration. I'm Sheila McKell. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Airs on Air. So thanks so much, Sophie, for joining Airs on Air today. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about Brexit and its impl- implications with immigration and, and corporate immigration programs. Um, specifically, I'd just like to, to find out a little bit more about OWL Immigration um, and your new endeavor and how that's been impacted by uh, Brexit and uh, impacting your day-to-day practice. Thank you, Bobby. So, um, so yeah, so Owl Immigration is my new endeavour. Uh, we're a consultancy company based in the UK, uh, so right in the middle of the Brexit storm. Um, and I guess I would say that Brexit has impacted us in two ways. So number one, I am very busy uh, with queries from clients about Brexit um, and what they should do moving their employees into the EU Um Uh, Actually, not so much the other way. So I'm not a UK immigration specialist myself, and OWL Immigration is not a UK registered consultancy. We're we're really more involved in kind of global or regional projects. So that's the type of thing we get involved with. You know, UK companies saying, we used to send our people anywhere we wanted to in the EU, and now we suddenly realise we can't, and what should we do? So that's one thing. But the the other thing that I really wanted to mention on this podcast particularly is one of the things that that OWL Immigration is, is really pushing forward is an online forum for immigration experts, whether they're lawyers or not lawyers or in-house or service providers uh, to kind of get together online and exchange their ideas and their feedback and their suggestions and their questions and their problems and to be a community to support one another. And so we have on the website, which is obviously owlimmigration.com, we have um, a section called the Parliament, which is the forum, and we have a Brexit board on there and it's the busiest page by far on the website. Uh, and yeah, I'd encourage all of your listeners to come in and have a look and feel free to post questions and ask for replies. We have a bunch of experts on there who are, who are really happy to, to kind of jump in and get involved. So yeah, Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. And thanks so much for letting everybody know about that. I mean, we, we've talked about this before, but that type of forum and exchange of ideas from within the, the realm of immigration professionals across the world is just so valuable. Um, you know, obviously, when when we're tackling global immigration or managing a program, a corporate immigration program for a company that is dealing with immigration sponsorship in different jurisdictions, it's it's really impossible across the board for any one professional to know every little thing and every nuance in every single country. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even with respect to Brexit, when, we're, you know, we're talking about a collection of EU countries that are impacted. So to have that exchange of, of ideas and information from those who might be specialists in one area uh, compared to the next is, is invaluable. So, I mean, I applaud you and I really recommend everybody check that out for sure. Thank you. Thanks. So, so what I, I wanted to start with when we're talking about the the idea of Brexit and you know the focus of this is going to be how Brexit has impacted immigration specifically, um, which is obviously one of the primary components of of Brexit. Um, but really, what I wanted to do was even um, you know step back a little bit and, and kind of explain how we got 
to this point. We'll, we'll certainly talk about where things stand as of today. Um, but I want to go back, you know, four plus years as to, um, you know, what set this in motion um, and, and what were those events like um, that, that got us to this point today. And so if you could give a little bit of a, a historical context, especially for those that might be new in global immigration or, or new in the mobility space, I, I think that would be helpful. Okay, so yeah, so what what got us to where we are today? Well, you know, um, you could go back decades and decades and decades. You know, the UK's relationship with the EU has been um, complicated for a long, long time, um, but we probably shouldn't go into all of that. So what really got us to where, where the kind of actual um, kind of practical things that led us you know to this point now started I guess was with the referendum so the UK held a referendum in June 2016 where every um, you know person eligible to vote in the UK could vote whether they thought the UK should leave the EU or not leave the EU so to leave or to remain and obviously as we all know leave won by a, a narrow margin and so the UK the process for the UK to leave the European Union was set in motion at that point in 2016. Um, so at that point, everybody thought uh, that, uh, um, you know, once Article 50 was triggered, so that was the article where the, the UK was formally announcing its intention to leave the EU, that there would be a two year countdown. Um, so the article was triggered, Article 50 was triggered in 2017, in March. So at that point, we thought that we'd be leaving the EU um, in March, the end of March 2019. Um, but we didn't because we hadn't uh, got a good deal. Um, so the, the kind of terms and conditions of the UK leaving the EU hadn't been really sorted out. So it was extended until June 2019. Then it was um, extended again until uh, October 2019. And then it was extended again <laughs> until <laughs> the end of January 2020. Um, at that point, we got a new prime minister. We got uh, Boris Johnson um, and uh, Boris Johnson was elected on a kind of pledge and a mission to get Brexit done by the end of January 2020. So at that point, at the end of January 2020, the UK did, in fact, leave the EU. So that happened um, almost a year ago uh, now, uh, be a year ago next week. From that point, from the point where the UK formally left the EU, we had a one year transition period, during which time the UK and the EU needed to hammer out the terms of the UK's exit. So during that one year transition period, things pretty much stayed the same. For all intents and purposes, it was basically um, sort of, it seemed as if the UK was still within the EU. Everything sort of still held water. That transition period ended at 11 p.m. UK time, uh, on the 31st of December, so on New Year's Eve. Uh, so since the 1st of January, uh, so for the last 25 days, the UK has been out of the EU and is no longer in the transition period, which means that we are no longer treated uh, in any way as if we were part of the EU. So Brexit is done. I mean, it was actually done a year ago, but now it's it's done. The deal is um, such as it is, is signed, sealed and delivered. And now we've got to get on with our lives and um, and make it work. And, and understand the implications. I mean, really, you know, I went to a, I think it was at the IBA conference about a year ago, um, and somebody said, who was it? Somebody said, you know, really people keep talking about getting Brexit done as if that's gonna be the end of it. But actually all that is, is getting to the 
to the beginning, to the foothills of the mountain that we now have to climb. And that's where we are now. So we've basically, what we've done now, if you think of it as that mountain, we've we've got our equipment, we finally got to the bottom of it, we've laced our boots up, but really at this point, there's there's a whole load of work to be done. So it's actually it's kind of only just the beginning, you know? Right. No, <laughs> and, and so that yeah. that is a really good um, retrospective of how we have gotten to this point and certainly what's ahead. And I, I think, and I can speak for somebody who's, you know, sitting across the pond um, in, in the U.S., yeah. just the, the, the as the events unfold, and then obviously I, I was living it day to day, helping manage corporate immigration programs, yeah. but certainly from somebody who's a, maybe an arm's length away from it, um, and also potentially in the U.S. or anywhere outside of the EU, um, you know, we have the big news of, of the yeah. referendum, and even that was breaking news in in the U.S. and um, in the middle of the the night, we're, we're watching yeah. news stories about it. But then, over the course of that period of four plus years, um, there were so many different changes of of momentum and plans and new yeah. elections and um, a lot of a, a lot of it you know a little bit hard to follow so I think um, for a lot of people we got to the end of, of last year and it was finally this sense of reality that we are entering this whole new world um, and okay now what now what do we have to do and so I think some you know as, as much as there was a big period of time for planning stages um, there are yeah. uh, you know still companies and and um, know, maybe individuals that are, are involved in uh, immigration that still yeah. need to wrap their head around, okay, what exactly just happened and what do I need to know today compared to uh, this time last year? So that is a, a good um, starting point, I think, to start uh, climbing that mountain. And um, we, we don't have all the answers by any, any stretch of the imagination. We're just still at the foothills of that mountain, but um, at least we can start to plant some of the seeds as to as of right now, with Brexit behind us, um, you know what are the things that that we really need to know? And so, we'll kind of talk about that. I th I think how we plan to do it is to speak about different categories of individuals. We'll obviously have to yep. look at this from both a UK nationals perspective, going into one of the EU countries, as well as you know nationals from different EU countries that could be coming into the UK or have family relationships um, in, in either scenario. So we will, you know, when we talk about Brexit, we always have to look at it um, from both of those angles. But um, I think it would also be uh, important, uh, Sophie, if, if you could just kind of explain the framework of, of how people should understand how these rules will uh, be implemented and impact people. So obviously we have a group and collection of nations within the EU where if they are going to have any movement or mobility into the UK, that is going to be set and, and treated under the standard framework of those UK laws, which have yeah. changed a little bit to uh, keep up with, with Brexit into, in this new world. But then also just understanding, helping people understand what the difference is for, uh, okay, when people are a UK national and they're going into E, the EU countries, um, that there's not necessarily one collective framework of laws that are going to impact them. It's going to be more on a national basis, uh, rule set up country by country. So could you just kind of explain and, and set the uh, framework for that so everybody's in the right mindset when we talk about these uh, different categories of individuals? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's exactly as you just said. So when you come in, if you've got an EU national coming into the UK, they are now treated just like any other non-UK national. So um, so the, the UK's immigration system will apply to them. The UK has a slightly new immigration system, well, a new immigration system that differs slightly from the old one. Um, but yeah, as you say, when people go from the UK, when UK nationals are going from the UK into the EU, they are also treated um, just like any other non-EU national now. Uh, but how they're treated varies depending on which of the 27 member states they're going into. So, um, so broadly speaking, you've got different... You, well, you, there, are, there, are some, there are some EU directives which provide for kind of similar treatment across the EU. So for example, the blue card is a local hire um, type of permit that is the application procedure is broadly similar in different EU member states, but it's it's still different, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's the ICT directive, which is the same thing. You know, it, the directive applies to the whole of the EU, but the application procedures are, are slightly different. So I always think it's, it's best to look at it. It's best, I mean, I, I like to look at the impact of Brexit through the kind of different uh, groups of employee type, um, because you have to break it down some way. So you've got your 27 different member states, and then you've got um, what your UK person is going in to do, uh, whether they're going to be working, whether they're going to be on business travel, um, if they're going to be working, you know, under what circumstances, are they long-term or short-term, are they locally hired or, or, you know, posted or assigned and that type of thing. And then, um, you can further break it down into whether that working person or business traveling person was doing the thing that they're now doing before the end of 2020 or not. So is it a person who was an existing employee or or transfer or whatever, or is it somebody new who's just starting to do that now? So basically what you've got is you've got 27 EU member states, and then you've got um, people who are doing that activity before the end of the year and people who are doing it post. uh, So that, kind of doubles your categories and then you've got the different categories of what somebody might be doing so business travel I I always think of it in terms of local hire assignment cross-border worker and business travel so you end up you know with whatever that turns out as 27 times two times four you know it's kind of a lot of different spreadsheets growing here when we're (laughs) spreadsheets growing. one thing one thing (laughs) we were talking about this earlier is that um, it's really important for people to know that the UK and Ireland are in a common travel area so make it 26 because if you've got a uk national going to um ireland or vice versa there is no uh immigration requirement um yeah potentially making ireland because of course they are a member of the eu right so um they're attractive to both sides of the equation right yeah if you if you want if you if you could have any passport you wanted i would suggest the irish one right Irish passports, gold. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. So let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into kind of what this matrix of of, of rules and uh, uh, strategies kind of looks like. And so just like you had laid it out, I think what we'll do is, is we'll break it down by that category of person. So let's explain a little bit what we mean by that. So um, your, your take on, you know, the difference between um, a local hire and an, and, and an assignee, which I think we'll, we'll, for the purpose of this conversation, kind of group together, but there are some uh, differences uh, eventually in how they might be treated down the road. The concepts will be the same, but if you could just define in global immigration speak, mobility speak, what we mean by local hires versus uh, assignees. 
Yeah, so local hire is somebody who goes onto local employment contract and um, I would say, you know, nearly all of the time local payroll in the country where they're working. So say I moved from the UK to Spain, do I stay on Owl Immigration UK payroll and contract or do I transfer and become an employee of Owl Immigration Spain? Um, that's the, that's a local hire. If I'm just sent on a short-term assignment or even a long-term assignment, but I remain an employee of the UK entity, that's that's an assignment. And the reason it matters, it doesn't, like lots of countries, it doesn't make any difference to the immigration process, you know? Actually, the kind of Anglo countries, you know, so US, Canada, UK, yeah. Australia, don't, don't tend to differentiate much, but a lot of EU member states do. Um, and there are different permits that you either, you know, that you may be eligible for and your route to permanent residency might be different as well. Right. Um, so so that, that's, that's I think, yeah, yeah one yeah. of the big things that, um, you know, we, we have to focus on is when we're quickly trying to get somebody to, a, to another country, there is also maybe this end game, right? And we have to think about yeah. um, the category that, that treats the end game the best way. But so it is just important for everybody to understand there is this difference um, in terms of local hires and, you know, intra-company treatment transferees that might be yeah. on a shorter or you know potentially up to three years or so type of assignment yeah. with the intent yeah. to return to their home country. So then we have this other category of, of, of individuals that um, we call commuters or cross-border workers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you want to shed some light on, on those individuals and especially how it pertains maybe to uh, popular destinations or combinations of countries that yeah. may be impacted by Brexit? So they're complicated. They're one of the most tricky categories. Um, so that's people who live in one country but commute into another country. Um, so, for example, I live in Bristol in the west of England. It takes me, um, my train journey to London is an hour and a half and it takes me half an hour to get to the train station and then probably half an hour on the tube the other end to get to whoever's office I'm going to. So that's about a two and a half hour round trip. I can also go to Bristol Airport, which is a half hour drive from my house and get a plane to Amsterdam that takes 50 minutes. And I can be, so I can I can be from my house at a client meeting in Amsterdam more easily than in London. So it's not right. uncommon to commute for people who live in the UK to essentially commute to another EU country to work and vice versa. You know, there are loads of reasons why you might, your right. family are here, you know, your kids are in school. Why would you, why would you um, uproot everybody if you didn't have to? So those cross-border commuters are a complicated category of people that we need to talk about. Um, and then there's a further kind of subcategory of that, which I would say people need to be aware of as well, which is um, cross-border commuters of a different nationality. So imagine you have a UK person who's on a long-term local hire status in, say, France, but their job involves, and this is very common, you know, their job involves them maybe making trips and visiting the office in Belgium and Switzerland as well, you know? That, that sort of person, what's going to happen to them? Um, that this, and so uh, these were the types of people that, <laughs> that this type of thing was going on um, without much afterthought, um, without much needing to plan necessarily, except logistics, um, certainly from an yeah. immigration sponsorship. Um, but now, hopefully those individuals, you know, have, have started to realize the implications of, of how Brexit now impacts that. Um, but companies, too, that just, you know, naturally yeah. relied on that uh, from a recruitment or a hiring standpoint, yeah. being able to hire individuals in that capacity, um, those types of avenues are now 
but you know not going a much a much more complicated and, yeah. and and closed in some cases and the other thing obviously is that into this wonderful mix you've got to put covid as well so people who okay. were in this kind of cross-border commuting situation for the most part stopped doing that uh, for the last year because they couldn't you know they couldn't go anywhere or they didn't want to go anywhere you know like one or both of those mm-hmm. situations so it's been difficult for people in that scenario to regularize their status anyway because they've not been even if you I mean, what you basically what you want to do in a cross-border situation like that is um, localize yourself or establish yourself in the host country so that you can then continue with that behavior post Brexit. But people haven't been able to do that because they haven't been able to travel. Um, yeah. So a transition yeah, period in the like, midst of a global pandemic was not um, not ideal. No transition <laughs> period, I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that certainly further complicates and why this conversation is necessary, why this conversation is you know happening quite a bit at the end of last year, at the beginning of this year, because as we get to the reality of you know and slowly but surely um, some people moving around, we didn't have that uh, trial and error period uh, that we thought we'd yeah. have due to COVID. So um, yeah. it's certainly a, a, an unfortunate um, and, and interesting twist to all of this. So. As we try to work through it, um, so so let's dig in a little bit um, in terms of you know very kind of broad strokes at what local work local workers or local hires those those nationals let's think about coming into the UK potentially. So previously um, from one of those 26 EU countries that will be impacted by Brexit, they're moving into the um, UK somebody who at this point, what are those main differences for those local hires and assignees that um, they have to realize now as compared to a year ago at this time? So if somebody were to move now, um, you know, they've not been working in the UK until now. If you moved a new employee into the UK now, they will require work permission. Um, And there are a couple of different, you know, there's a couple of different routes that they can follow to get that work permission there's um the skilled worker route and there's an intra-company transfer route but it's basically exactly the same as if you were applying for work permission for a u.s national or a canadian or or somebody like that mm-hmm. um so you know the uk entity has to sponsor that they have to have a sponsorship license so the uk entity has to be sort of all set up and registered to sponsor foreign workers um and then you know, the, the individual employee has to get permission and then they have to get um, a corresponding entry clearance visa and then only then can they start work. So, yeah, they, they need to get work permits just like anybody else would. Right. Um, and I, and then, I assume yeah. there's a good group of uh, companies out there that previously maybe hired from within the EU but didn't bring people in necessarily from North America or yeah. the regions of the world. And so now they're, you know, trying to figure out what a certificate of sponsorship is and, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and all of that stuff. Hopefully there's some planning that goes into that to get everything up and running prior to that authorization of a case that somebody needs to move over um, because that's going to take a, some ramp up time if the, the company doesn't exactly. have experience. Exactly. You've got to get that stuff sorted out. And and even if you have, if you have hired foreign workers before, you know, you've got to sort out your sponsorship licenses and your entity structure. Like all of that stuff needs to be nice and clean and tidy because it's likely that if you're, you know, for the most part, it's EU nationals that you're looking to hire. You know, you just want to get your house in order, basically, before right. you have to start making um, significant numbers of application or any application. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so those individuals then that came prior to January 1st of this year, 
that are maybe working from within the EU. Um, maybe they, they moved over, you know, right before the pandemic hit, uh, potentially. Yeah. Um, you know, what types of things do companies have to think about for those individuals um, as, you know, we've, we've now are past the transition period? Yeah, so people who've been here since before the end of 2020 uh, can apply for either settled status or pre-settled status, depending on how long they've been here. And they have until the end of June to make that application. So till the 30th of June um, to register uh, for that status. And they need to do it before the end of June, because if they don't, they're going to have quite significant problems after that. So the UK's kind of settled and pre-settled scheme, uh, you know, the UK scheme for EU nationals who who already here has been up and running for quite some time, and it's been really widely publicised. And you can, it's it's fairly easy to register. You can do it on your phone. You know, there's a Android app that you can, you know, it's it's not it's not too difficult. But obviously, the anxiety, not so much from a corporate point of view, but from a from a more of a kind of personal and ethical point of view, is what about many EU citizens who might not have realised and might not register in time or might be unable, unable to get to a library or unable to have, inter- you know, there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, what about those people? But from right. a corporate standpoint, if you've got EU national employees in the UK, they really should have registered by now. And if they haven't, <laughs> then make sure they do it by the end of June. Right. Um, yeah. So we have another targeted date that, you know, some, something to circle on the calendar, certainly, um, and something to stay apprised of. Um, yeah. and plan, but I, I would, I, I sense that the overall, um, you know, idea is for those individuals that came into the UK prior to uh, December 31st last year, that the, the UK yeah. has set this up so that they can quite easily yeah. remain in country and yeah. ultimately someday become UK national. Exactly, exactly, yeah, okay. that's right. So, so. Um, that, that kind of covers uh, those local workers or local hires, and, and we talked about them in the same vein yeah. as we talked about the, the assignees as well. So um, the, the impacts from a cross-border worker or commuter standpoint, yeah. what types of things do we have to think about for those individuals that, um, you know, had maybe been in that situation prior to uh, December 31st or those individuals that might now um, be embarking on those types of uh, work uh, relationship. So for people, so e, if you think about EU to UK, um, so people cross borders, you know, so say somebody lives in Paris, but they commute to London a few times a week. There is a frontier, uh, the, the UK is calling it a frontier work permit rather than a cross border or commuter permit. So there's a frontier work permit available for people who were doing that um, for up to four days a week. Uh, otherwise you don't count as frontier. You, you're too too much resident and they can apply for that frontier permit for permission to continue working um in that way uh if you if you if you're only starting that now if you've got somebody you want to do that now there's there's no such thing the frontier work permit is only for people who were already working in that way prior mm-hmm. to the end of the transition period so from now on if you had somebody now who said yeah sure i'll, I'll go and work in the uk but i want to commute back and forth to my family in in you know paris or brussels or something then they're going to just need a, a standard work permit like like everybody else there's no special special rule for them right so it gets then, back to this idea the other of, one, yeah yeah uh, you know sorry go ahead sorry 
Yeah. No, I was going to say I was going to start launching into the other way around, but say what you were going to say. <laughs> well, I, I think it'll translate to the yeah. other way around as well. So, but it's just this concept of getting your house in order, right? Um, again, yeah. Of doing the the backtracking to understand who those individuals are, um, or were in that relationship, or how you've hired in the past that way, and really detailing a game plan. So I'll let you exactly. go ahead and uh, explain the yeah. the reverse uh, scenario. Yeah, like, you're, no, you're right, though, because, you, yeah, you, you need to know who you've got and what they're doing. And actually, so there aren't very many silver linings to COVID. It's basically awful, um, as we all know. But one tiny little silver lining, perhaps, is that it forced people to find out where their employees actually were right. <laughs> and to know what they were doing. So so that's that's not a bad thing. I mean, people, you know, you, really, you do need to know what your employees are doing and where they are so that you can make sure you categorise them in the right way and get get them permission to carry on doing it so the other way around um uk national employees who are cross-border commuting into an eu member state they are not necessarily protected in the same way even if they've already been doing it so that really is quite a big quite a big risk area you know if you've got somebody who's been cross-border commuting and they've got a work and residence permit for the or they've got a you know they've registered their their residence in the eu member state that's one thing. But for example, if I go back to me as a potential example, if I, I used to go to Amsterdam fairly frequently, if I had been traveling back and forth to Amsterdam as a cross-border commuter, and then I'd stopped doing that because of COVID and I stayed at home, and now I wanted to start it again whenever you know this current lockdown finishes, I would not be able to do that because I never registered um, my you know kind of residence in Amsterdam. And there is now no way for me to to continue doing that unless I unless I get a work permit. So for the most part, people who have been, you know, working in this way can't continue what they were doing, even if they were doing it before the end of the transition period, because for the most part, they won't have registered, they won't have got the the right documentation. They will now have no way of getting it. So it's a it's a big problem. And yeah. companies who've got employees in that situation need to, you know, the other thing is that, you know, I hate it when people say this, but it but it is true. It, it varies depending on the country they're in, depending on the EU member state. So you've really got to look at it kind of case by case and, and work out what the best what the best possible route is. And right. I think I think this is the right time as well to mention that obviously so say you go back to the local hires and the people on assignment, um, and that example that we had of, you know, say you've got a, a UK national who's on local assignment in Paris but now they're commuting across the border to Belgium if you think of that person it's really important for people to remember and to understand that just because that person may have been able to kind of regularize and um, continue their employment in Paris doesn't mean that they can continue the cross-border work into Belgium because the thing they've got now in Paris is the thing that allows them to live and to work in France because that's what they were doing prior to the end of the transition period but it has no value or weight or authority in any of the other EU member states. So if you've got people who were, you know, UK nationals who were based in an EU member state, and if they have regularised their status and they're there and it's all good, remember that they need to understand that they're not home and dry yet. They can't use that document in other EU member states. So they can't freely work in the way that they could before, even if they've got a work or you know a residence permit for for one of the EU member states, and that's something I'm not sure people are completely, um, you know, across able to uh, appreciate. It, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. important again, right? The the back to you know kind of what we mentioned that yeah. you know unfortunately it is that 
big spreadsheet because of the fact that there is 26 scenarios when <laughs> we're looking at different country rules and you know that yeah. as you explained perfectly um would just be limited to that specific scenario or that specific yeah, immigration yeah. benefit yeah. Uh, most exactly. likely and so exactly. i think that's probably a good segue to also talk about the individual um that might be able to you know let's say they're a uk national and now they're on an assignment or they have some work permission in, let's say France or um, the Netherlands. Um, but what about those individuals that I think would frequently maybe hop on, of course, pre-pandemic and once we're back to a more normal, yeah. um, what we're used to from a normal perspective of travel, um, would hop on a plane or a train or uh, however and go to another EU country as you know for two weeks at a time or three weeks at a time. So maybe not a, a broad sense of a um, commuter relationship, but a, an EU business traveler. And that really impacts not just people that uh, you know, are those uh, road warriors, so to speak, but that also impacts um, all of us who just might have hop on a plane. Um, and so I think that yeah. there's some interesting scenarios to talk about and unwrap with uh, quote unquote business travelers. So um, if, if you want to take a first stab at, you know, that's a pretty broad subject that we could certainly do just a, a podcast on in itself. Um, but in the sense of immigration, you know, the assignees, the cross-border workers, local hires, they might be on the radar of mobility, um, but there's a good chance that the everyday employees that with some business travel, um, that they um, aren't necessarily on the radar. So how is Brexit from an immigration standpoint going to impact those business travelers? Business travel is awful. It's yeah. it's the worst out <laughs> of all of it. So you know what people what people need to do is they need to flip in their heads the order of risk actually because normally I think normally as a mobility manager you think okay somebody who's going to be locally hired locally employed that's the person who's going to need the work permit so they're important I've got to remember about them and then and then you sort of it diminishes right so by the time you get to business travelers when you're talking about UK and EU historically like previously last year <laughs> a month ago nobody had to worry about it at all you could do whatever you wanted but mm -hmm. now it is definitely in my mind the biggest area of risk for anybody because it is not like it was but yet we are still obviously geographically right here you know yep. so there's two giant risk areas one is duration of stay and the other one is um type of activity so and it applies both you know both things apply equally to uk people going to the eu and eu travelers coming into the uk so the first one if you think about duration of stay so um eu business travelers into the uk uh you're given permission you don't have to get a separate visa or anything but you you are given permission with your eu passport to enter the uk for up to 180 days um at a at a time um you know the kind of rule of thumb is to not spend more than 180 days in a in a calendar year as a business traveler because after that it starts to look a lot like you're working and residing here um, but really the, the kind of technical, the law is uh, 180 days at a time. Uh, and then as far as activities go, uh, there are some uh, specific activities set out in uh, UK immigration rules about what constitutes business and what constitutes work. Uh, but for the most part, it's what you'd expect. You know, if you're coming for a business meeting or to, the, um, you know, go to a conference or, or that type of thing, sales meetings, you know, those are, those are business trips. And if you're doing productive work or uh, that sort of thing, then, then it's work and you need a work permit. So there's, it's that double edged thing, you know, there's the duration of stay 
and there's the activities. And like people find it really hard to get their head around. So they think, oh, you know, I'll be fine for 180 days because I'm not paid there. And so I can do whatever I want. But it's, it's not, and 180 days is too long as well. It's confusingly long. You know, it's mm-hmm. six months. And who's going to really be in sales meetings for six months? Right. I know I'm not Nice be, conference you know? to attend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's confusing for people. But really, if you're doing the work activities for even, you know, three days, that's work. And you therefore need a, a work permit. Right. Um, so that's EU people coming to the UK. The other way around is even even worse because what you have there is, um, first of all, you've got the Schengen rules. So most of the EU is in the Schengen, not not all, but nearly, most of the EU is in the Schengen zone. And obviously the Schengen rules um, mean that non, uh, you know, people coming from outside the Schengen area into the Schengen area are allowed to, or non-EU nationals coming to the Schengen area are allowed to stay for up to 90 days out of a rolling 180-day period, so three months out of any given six months, and it's calculated backwards. So if you're in the uh, Schengen area on a particular day, you have to have not been in there for more than 90 days in the 180-day period preceding that moment, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's so complicated to explain. Yeah, it is. (laughs) There's calculators online, I believe, too, to help people try to calculate, but even those are, you know, it's, it's, you know, Tough to get your it's head awful. Around. And anything you need an online calculator for is, you know, right. by definition, a headache, right? Because you shouldn't oh, right. need an online calculator. So anyway, so that, <laughs> that's 90 days out of 180 and it's in the entire Schengen zone. So then what you've got is a situation where you could have a UK person who is um, going on business trips regularly to Amsterdam, Paris, you know, Brussels, whatever they're doing. And maybe then they go on holiday. Maybe they have a, a holiday home you know, um, in south of France or Spain or something like that. And all of those trips, so it's business and tourism combined, all of them are adding up to that 90-day limit. Mm-hmm. Um, and UK nationals are not used to having to calculate these things and nor are their employers. So it's a big um, issue and a big problem. Uh, and most UK employers, I, I think, don't have any type of mechanism for counting those days in country. They're not used to having to do it. They don't necessarily have a, a special, you know, there's there are right. tools and there's there's good software out there, but you don't necessarily, people aren't necessarily using it. And then on top of that, you've got the activities. So again, if you're doing anything that's beyond what's defined as business, then you need a work permit. So then the big question is what's defined as business and what's defined as work. And in fact, there are two answers to this question. So one is um in the trade and cooperation agreement which is the agreement the UK and the EU have signed about how our relationship is going to work going forward there are in fact it's an enormous agreement it's about a thousand pages long and sort of near the end of it um, there is there are some definitions of what constitutes business um, activities but I have spoken to multiple different um, immigration lawyers around the EU whose opinion I um, admire and respect who are concerned that the definitions in the trade and cooperation agreement aren't um, comprehensive enough. Uh, And also that there hasn't so far, as far as any of us are aware, there hasn't been any attempt to sort of transpose those those definitions in that trade and cooperation agreement into national law of any of the EU member states. So what you're left with is a bunch of definitions in an agreement that I think inspectors... um, you know, looking for compliance or non-compliance on any kind of workplace site are not going to be familiar with, that aren't necessarily part of national law yet. Um, and, you know, don't even necessarily cover all of the member states anyway. <clears throat> so it's, it's a 
bit of a it's a bit of a problem to rely yeah. on the trade and cooperation agreement basically is what i'm saying but if you don't rely on it if you can't rely on it which my advice would be that you can't then you have to instead revert to national law which means you have to look at the definition of uh what co- co- constitutes a business activity or what doesn't constitute business activity in each of those um eu member states so that's not great either uh but that's that's the reality unfortunately um, right and i mean i i suspect <laughs> and that's always i mean for anybody who practices global immigration or just any immigration um th- this concept of what is work and what is business is always one of the most difficult things and different yeah. difficult scenarios but you know because even if it is laid out not every single example is going to be laid out and there's certainly clear cut things like you mentioned such as attending a yeah. conference or or something like that um that is you know you feel there's a very concrete answer to give um yeah. but oftentimes it's because you don't know who is going to be interpreting right so whether it exactly. is an inspector and an audit or whether it is um you know a border so, official yeah. right yeah. i mean yeah. they might have yeah. their own way of of interpreting these things that um at the end of the day is just going to provide headaches yeah. um especially you know certainly for the travelers as well as um for those mobility managers that are are responsible for these travelers because you don't want those types of headaches to happen in the course of of business you just want people yeah. to you know have some uh some good experiences um so that's that's certainly i mean it's it's very difficult so when we're talking about numbers and days and counting and um activities and then there there's also i think you know outside of just work permits and it's not the subject of this conversation but there are other things to be aware of right with regards yeah. to posted worker directive with regards yeah. to um you know any notification re- requirements involved with that and social security yeah. agreements as well um yeah. so all of this is just making it one um kind of complicated um a uh, you know path for those of us in this field to ha- to have to navigate exactly exactly and with business travel you know so what i used to say to people all the time is that the biggest risk area with business travelers um into europe was uh sort of visa waiver nationals so you know americans <laughs> canadians <laughs> australians like people who don't need because if you've got somebody who needs to go and apply for a visa it's kind of okay you know they go to the embassy they say what they're going to be doing right. and the embassy is going to you know they tell them they're going to say and, like right yeah they either get their visa or they say look sorry the thing you're doing is a work permit and so yep. at least you know what it is you're doing so i used to say you know really your risk areas are these people from you know more privileged nations who don't have to get an entry visa but if you take that you've got to kind of multiply that by about 100 when you come to the uk because firstly the frequency of the trips is so much greater and the kind of habit of just being able to do whatever you want is right. is so ingrained you know you know yeah like if you're getting on a plane across the atlantic yep. it's it's different from from when you can just jump on a train you know that you've been um, doing your yeah. whole life or your whole career and yeah. you know i think especially too just to then you know complicate it with this idea that um you know i think when you have uh you know trips across the atlantic it, it's not um you know as yeah. common for there to be a big mix or interplay of both uh work as well as leisure but obviously exactly. that's now going to be a different uh standpoint when that everyday travel is going to be counted within the same breadth of uh work yeah. travel and that is going to be complicated for travelers as well as 
uh, the, their companies who have a compliance risk in all of this to be able to uh, calculate and manage. Yeah. It's really complicated and people are really confused about it. So I, you know, this morning I was talking to a client who um, he's British national and his wife is an EU national and they're, they want, they live in the States and they wanted to move back into Europe and they're sort of realising that it's not as simple as they thought it was. And I said to them, which maybe was, you know, a bit rude of me, but I said, why didn't you just move before? <laughs> why didn't you come before Christmas? Would have been so much easier. And they said, you know, they said, honestly, we didn't realise. They said, we just thought this whole thing was just, you know, we hadn't really thought about how it mm-hmm. would apply to us. And I thought, well, yeah, fair enough, actually, because the deal was so delayed, you know, it kept getting delayed. People didn't really, it's not like, I mean, we feel like we've had all of this time to prepare, but we haven't because, you know, if you go back to that mountain metaphor, we didn't know if it was a mountain or a hill or if it was going to be cold at the top or not. Like nobody knew what it was until really the very last minute. So how could you pack your bags properly to climb it if you didn't even know what it was going to be like? Yep. And it's a whirlwind of activity now. So um, and that kind of translates to my final kind of discussion point with you is kind of now understanding the different impacts and the concepts and, and the things that individuals responsible for employees with, uh, you know, movement that may be impacted by Brexit, what they need to start thinking about. Um, what are best practices um, in these geopolitical events, which are not going to be isolated to just the EU and the UK and, and Brexit, even though that's probably um, the biggest uh, thing to hit global immigration? Um, you know, but there are a lot of geopolitical uh, events that may occur. There's changes in government um, in different countries. What does it all tie back to in terms of best practices for companies? Um, and being able to um, organize uh, their global immigration program and to really get their house in order to deal with these types of events? So for me, it's easily the most important thing is the, is the data and the tracking. So you people have to know where their employees are, um, what immigration status they're on, um, how long they've got left on that immigration status and where geographically they are in the world. Because if you don't know what status, and, and you know, anybody listening to this who, who doesn't have a handle on that shouldn't feel embarrassed about it because so, so few companies do. And I have worked, I've worked for 20 years in global immigration. And I've worked on a lot of projects where people have had, you know, mergers and acquisitions and that type of thing where they're trying to change sponsorship for employees from one entity to another and, you know or transition from one immigration provider to another provider like I've seen so many things like that and it's vanishingly rare that a company can say here's a list of all of my people here's their immigration status here's when it expires let alone here I can pinpoint exactly where this person is right now in the world you know people just can't do it but but they have to be able to do it um people have to get we have to as a kind of industry practice we have to get better at that because planning and managing this kind of thing that a huge amount of effort is always put into that and it's something that would be done more easily um you know as you were going along really uh, it's it's just important to keep track of it um as as you as you go if, yeah if you can. <laughs> no and yeah. i i couldn't agree with you more there's just way too much at risk from 
you know, the, the individual's standpoint from a compliance, uh, their family, um, yeah. for, for, you know, daily uh, things that they take for granted if, if you are moving them into a new location to make sure that they have a continuation of, of those activities or, you know, schooling, things of that nature. And then obviously yeah. from the company standpoint, um, there's so much risk involved, bad PR that could be involved if you're not doing yeah. these things the correct way. And so I know that I'm very proud from an air standpoint that we have technology in place that we've you know, taken our years of experience yes. with providing immigration service. And we now have technology in place through travel tracks and mobility acts, uh, two software uh, pieces that, that really converge with our customer service to be able to um, you know, provide those tools to companies so that yeah. they can get that, achieve that pie in the sky, um, uh, you know, type of uh, place where they want to be with regards to managing their program and the, any piece of immigration data that might exist. And, you know, certainly from the OWL immigration side, you know, now to have this forum, yeah. uh, you know, as well as, you know, other ability to, to utilize you as, as um you know, an immigration yeah. professional with, with as much experience as I've met with regards to anybody out there with global immigration work. Um, you know, I mean, those types of, uh, you know, people that are out there like yourself can really allow uh, companies and those stakeholders to, to get to that place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If people can use, you know, software like yours to know where their people are and what they're doing, then everything becomes easier. You know, then you can have intelligent conversations with people like me, you know, or, or you, Bobby, um, about what you need to do next. And you can be much more targeted in how you talk to your employees. You know, you can you can understand, OK, we have this many people in the Netherlands. We need to do this for them. We need to talk to them about, you know, we need to run a workshop for them on how they're going to, you know, apply for their settled status or whatever it is they're doing, you know. All of a sudden, everything's about a million times easier as long as you know where your people are and what status they're on in the first place. So, yeah, that's the the key to all of it, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, I certainly welcome anyone to to reach out to you to certainly join those forums um, to yes, please, you know yeah. have some humility in terms of what we all understand and know within the space of global immigration, which is there's just so much to know that nobody there's always something to learn. So yeah, um, you know, I, I appreciate your time um, and your your perspective and your your expertise and, and knowledge. I mean, it's it's I'm sure really helpful for anyone listening to this podcast. So. Thank you so much, Sophie, it's for being able pleasure. to join us today. And um, I, I uh, look forward to speaking again soon. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Bye -bye. Cheers.